Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I love that video, and I'll be playing you two more clips from that, that church in the next couple weeks. And I love that video because it's so funny because it's so not true. It, points, it pokes fun at the way that Jesus and Christianity are so greatly misunderstood by the world around us. And the question I guess I have for us this morning is, why do such misunderstandings exist? Why do, people, why do some people actually think that's what Christianity stands for, is a condemnation of everybody in the world and a pointing out of everyone's flaws and sins, and that's where our message begins and ends. Why would people ever get that impression and not laugh at the video but think that this is an instructional video that the church is playing? <clears throat> I believe, <clears throat> excuse me, I believe that most people develop their opinions of Christianity and of Christ on the basis of very limited interactions with people who say that they represent and follow Jesus Christ. You know, years ago I told you a story, I don't don't know if some of you remember it, about a young lady who was shopping for a a, a cross pendant. And so she was at a, a, a jewelry store, and she was trying to point out the particular cross that she wanted to the sales girl. And the sales girl kept grabbing the wrong one. She finally said, no, that one. And she pointed to a crucifix. And the girl, the sales girl behind the counter says, oh, you mean the one with the cute little man on it? She had no clue that the cross was not just a decorative symbol, but it represented the crucifixion, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, I use that story to illustrate an important point. We are living now in what many have called a post-Christian era. The general story of what Christianity is and what the gospel is used to be fairly common knowledge in Western culture. It isn't any longer. There are people who, it's unthinkable to imagine, but they can look at a crucifix and have no idea the historical significance of the man depicted on that ornament. They just think it's a dude hanging on a familiar ornament. And when we live in that kind of a world, is it any wonder then that people don't really have a means of forming a real opinion about Jesus other than what they hear and see in the lives of those who say they live for Jesus Christ? You know, the truth is, a lot of Christians today in the church, we're not reading our Bibles, are we? I I don't know if we should do the whole, bow your heads, raise your hand if you never read the Bible, but... In my just dealings with with people over the years, I would say at least half of people in the church, in this and most churches, just aren't reading the Bible very much, if at all. And so if we Christians are not spending any time in the Bible, I very much doubt people outside the church are looking at the Bible at all. And so it stands to reason that the real witness for Jesus Christ today in our culture is the gospel and the scriptures lived out and embraced in my life And in your life, our very lives are the leading edge of what we call witness and evangelism. You know, Jesus understood that we would be his representatives in Luke Luke, uh, 10, 16. Listen to what Jesus says. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. Do you understand what he's saying there? That you are so very much empowered to be the representatives of Jesus Christ that the person who sees and hears what you're saying is getting a representation of Jesus Christ. 
And if they reject you, ultimately they're also rejecting Him. That's an incredible privilege and an awesome responsibility for us to bear together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the bottom line truth. Once you and I have gone public in our declaration that we follow Jesus, we are witnessing for Him 24-7. The question is never whether you're witnessing, but what sort of witness your life represents. Isn't that true? Let me tell you, if your neighbors and your friends know that you follow Jesus Christ, then I tell you whether you intend to or not, your life is a testimony that reflects on Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. The real question for you and me this morning is, what story do our lives tell about what Jesus is like and what the gospel really says? I don't want to say that to you to give you a heavy heart, but I hope that the tone of this message will uplift your heart to help you realize what an incredible opportunity we have to begin the act of evangelism simply by the way that we embrace and clothe ourselves with the character of Jesus Christ. The text this morning is Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17, but I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, out of the New Living Translation. Let me read this for you. And we're going to spend three weeks in this text. Today, I'm going to focus on the first verse. And we'll use some videos and, and some interesting uh, techniques to try to teach these principles to our church over the next three weeks. Since God chose you to be the holy people whom he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, listen, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I chose the NLT because of the way it translates that last verse there. In most other translations, you probably recognize this verse as saying, whatever you do or say, do it all in the name of Jesus. And very many of us have interpreted or understood that to mean, do it as if you're doing it for Jesus, as if you're giving a gift to Jesus. But the real essence of that teaching is not to do it for Jesus, but as a representative of Jesus. This phrase, to do something in the name of someone else, has lost some meaning in our culture. But when you do something in another person's name, you do it as their whole representative, so that when they see you, they see that person whom you represent. Some of you may have gone and represented your firm or your boss in exactly the same manner, so that when you sign a document, you sign it for something much bigger than yourself. And that's the real idea here. We have the opportunity to live our lives as the manifestation and the representatives of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that some people may form their entire opinion of Christ and the Christian faith 
based on what they've come to experience in being your friend. Now, maybe you never asked for that, but that comes with the territory of following Jesus Christ. So I love this language that Paul uses here. He says, when you become a Christian, in the passage just before this, he says, there's some old dirty garments you're supposed to take off when you become a Christian. We all know that, right? There are certain things we used to do and we love doing that we don't do any longer because we're clean and we follow Christ. But there are other garments which we must now put on as our clothing to cover our nakedness. And it's this wardrobe that I want to talk about briefly this morning. Everybody likes buying new clothes, don't they? Jeannie and I kind of brought our kids to all these different babysitters' homes. And yesterday we had two hours, which for us, it's like a honeymoon. We had two hours, no kids. We were so giddy. We just, for 20 minutes, just sat in the car and went, ah! We didn't know what to do with ourselves. And then I just looked at Jeannie and I said something I almost never say. Daddy's in the mood to spend some money on you, girl. Uh. So I just looked at her and said, how are you doing on shoes? How are you doing on jackets? How about shirts? You need a skirt, don't you? And we just went through the mall and I spent some money buying her clothes. I never, ever, ever do this. It was like dating again. And there is just something thrilling about getting new clothes. Some of you got to say amen. You know this is true, right? Just love getting new clothes. I got a new pair of shoes in the bargain, which was great, because when Jeannie's in a good mood, she lets me buy stuff. And I decided to wear these shoes. I want to tell you about some clothes which you have the privilege of wearing, which before you met Jesus, you can never truly wear and pull off. Jeannie often says to Susie, Susie wears clothes that I would never pick from the store, but it works so well on her, I could never pull that off. And that's the whole point. Before you're a Christian, you try these things. It just doesn't look right. You, you can't pull it off. But when you've met Jesus and you wear this, everyone goes, oh yeah, yeah, that works. That looks right on you. Let me describe these garments as quickly as I possibly can. The first of these garments is something called tender-hearted mercy. Tender-hearted mercy. If you are to be the representative of Christ, the first thing most people see about you is your, your clothing. Don't we sometimes just, we hate to admit it, but we judge somebody by their appearance. I'm not saying that's right, it's just true. And so the leading edge of our witness is what we look like to people on the surface. This first garment is that we are to be clothed with tender-hearted mercy. You know what this is describing? It's describing that rare quality in a person who, when they see the sorry state of another person's broken life, responds not with revulsion and disgust, but with genuine compassion. This is a very rare and powerful gift. This is something only Jesus makes possible in our lives. You know, can I tell you that most of us, myself included, when we see somebody whose life is just a complete mess, and they're doing it to themselves. We don't really feel compassion before we feel a whole lot of self-righteous disdain. That's the bottom line truth. Let me ask you a couple diagnostic questions. Where is your heart when you're watching cops on Fox television, and you see that guy in the tank top who's drunk and cussing up a storm and kicking his children and beating his wife and fighting with the cops? When you see that guy's life, where is your heart? Where is your heart? When you see the young woman helplessly destroying her future because of an addiction. A young man throwing away his whole life because he cannot get out of a relationship he absolutely should not be in. 
When you see a young boy walking through the hallways of the church or the school, bullying other helpless kids, beating them up, strong-arming them, tell me where your heart is. I mean, just the other week, Hans and I broke up a fight. Well, he broke it up. I did some counseling. He manhandled these, pull apart, time out. How do you feel when you see one kid in the church just deck, and he cold cocked him, just pow, right in the face. And you walk upon that scene, tell me honestly how you feel about the offending boy. Some of us, no, no, that's not honest. Maybe all of us want to open up a can on that kid, don't we? I know Hans did for sure. <laughs> so did I. Everything in my flesh wanted to take that kid. You like, you like punches, huh? You like punches and just want to rough him up. You just want, you know, when you see a bully, that's what you want to do. Rare is the person who sees the ugliest ugly in another person's life and is broken by that. There is always going to be a flare-up of righteous anger when we see that injustice, that cruelty. But the heart of Christ produces something in us that when we see that ugliness, something soft also beats inside that says, what had to happen in a person's life to turn a little boy or a little girl into this person. What must have happened in that life to produce such a sorry adult? You know, the truth is that what we're clothing ourselves with is not the best of our own human character. That would be worthless. And we couldn't wear that clothing for very long before we got sick of the outfit. What we're clothing ourselves with is the best of Christ's character. That's why it's so important if you really want to put on this garment, it's not going to be done through just sheer effort and strain. You can't have tender-hearted mercy by looking at an ugly person and just going, all right, try to imagine their pain and their brokenness. That's not how it happens. This clothing I'm describing to you this morning can only be put on when it's received by recognizing that Jesus Christ looks like this and he has looked at you in the same way. How ugly have you been in your life? The honest truth is, on a regular basis, I confront my own failings. I've made some mistakes as a leader and as a human being that I just hate replaying. There are some sermons I preach that I feel are so weak, so powerless, that when I hear Jeannie playing it in the car, I just want to get out of the car. I just can't listen to it. There are things I've done that when I see reminders of it, my skin crawls. I know that the ugly I see in others is right there in me. And the question is, when Jesus saw that in you and me, how did he respond? Because do you realize he alone in this universe has the right to crush you with disgust? And what I find amazing is that Jesus Christ does not crush us, but he has tended harder, why can I not say that? Tender-hearted mercy for you and me. Easier word is really compassion. Compassion. If you could see the way Jesus sees your ugliness, if you could fix your eyes on that, you'd be amazed how he grants you a whole new perspective on the ugliness in others. You know, it's interesting with four children that my wife and I, you know, we kind of split up our kids. We have a tenderness toward different kids. I have a couple kids in my family that I feel a special instantaneous, how do I describe like an instinctive compassion towards that Jeannie doesn't. And we flip-flop them. So each kid's covered. 
And there are times when one of us just wants to open up a can on this kid, and the other one steps in and goes, hey, hey, calm down. They're just a kid, and they're confused. Every kid gets selfish. We've got to teach this kid not to be selfish. And just beating him down won't teach him. And we take turns being the defender because for that kid, Christ has put something in us that reminds us, that's me too. That little kid is me at that age. And I needed a break. I'm a mess. And Jesus responded to my ugly with compassion instead of disgust. Let me give you a second piece of clothing for the wardrobe. Paul says you also have to clothe yourself with something called kindness. Kindness. You know, kindness is kind of a a weak word in the English language. Most of us use it as a synonym for the word nice. For example, someone opens the door for you or somebody maybe writes you an encouraging note and you say, that was very kind of you. Well, I think it was nice of them, but if we understood the technical meaning of the word kind as it was given to us in the New Testament, here's what the word kindness really means. Pay attention to this. Kindness means goodness where badness would normally be expected. Kindness is usually a surprise. You don't say, oh, thank you for being so kind. You say, whoa, that was really kind. Thank you for that. That's the real tone. When we encounter kindness, it's in a situation where anyone in their right mind would expect badness and anger and wrath to come. But what we get instead is a gentle word or a little act of patience and forgiveness. Kindness always surprises us because everybody who's around us witnessing the event would say, oh, you would have been in totally in your rights to beat that person up, to tell them off, to sue them. And instead, you were so nice when you had the right to be so not nice. You know what's interesting is in Matthew 11.30, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because what? My yoke is, tell me, it's easy. That word easy is the exact same word here translated kindness. You know what that tells me about the nature of kindness? Who expects a yoke to be easy? What Jesus is saying in those words is, Come, let me be your master and you be my ox. Come work for me. Come take orders from me. Come follow the directions I give. Let me ask you something. Who in their right mind and their sanity wants to let anybody else become their master? That's not attractive to me. It doesn't matter who the master is. Something in my human nature says, No, I don't really like the sound of that. That makes me very uncomfortable When you tell me, come and be my slave, let me be your master and put a yoke on you. Do you know that word yoke is a scary, terrifying word? Yet Jesus says, you'll be surprised when you put this yoke on. Have you ever seen an article of clothing that looked really scratchy and uncomfortable? And then you try it on and you go, oh, that's surprisingly comfortable. That's the exact feeling of kindness. You're expecting the worst. And what you find is it's very surprisingly Not as bad. In fact, it's actually kind of good. Jesus said, you come and let me be your master. Put this yoke on you. I know you're expecting a dreary, ugly life. You'll be very surprised to find that this yoke is a yoke of kindness. Where you expect dreary suffering, you will find joyful celebration. This yoke will shock you. That's the way that we Christians are meant to be in our world. Everywhere around you, you see people acting naturally. You get cut off, you get betrayed, you get uninvited, you get defriended. What do you do? 
What do you do when someone defriends you? That's the, the worst slap in the face in our culture today. You know, has it ever happened to you? By the way, any of you get defriended? You don't have to raise your hand, but it, it actually kind of stings. I've discovered that it stings. Even if the person's like, oh, my bad, you're not really my friend. I'm going to defriend you. Oh, can't I just still stay on your list? What do you do when that person treats you like that? Everywhere around us that we look, we see people acting naturally. Oh, no, they didn't just do that. you got to sue. you got to tell them off. Go talk to their manager. Go chew them out. You have every right to be as harsh as you want because they have just shafted you. Go and tell them off. And everyone around is chewing. Go, 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 go. Fight, fight. You know that bloodlust that gets into people when they're ready to watch a great confrontation? I, I never understood that. Fight, fight. It's so morbid. But I've done it too. Why do we like that? We love watching people just act out of the flesh. But it's always very surprising when we see somebody who responds totally the other way. You're waiting for a fight and they go, you know what? It's not a big deal. I'm going to let this go. You're off the hook. Or That wasn't very nice. I don't really appreciate what you did. I wish you'd apologize. That's so much better than bam, isn't it? And when you're expecting the punch and you get a gentle but firm word, that raises eyebrows. Do you know Paul said to us in Romans 2.4, don't you know that it is God's kindness, his goodness when we expect wrath, that leads us to repentance. Isn't that powerful? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Well, you look like you're still cold, so let me give you another piece of clothing. Humility. Humility. Now, I can go for hours talking about humility, not because I have it, but because I like to have it. Most of you know that I don't have any humility. I wish I did. Just play one sport with even a sport I'm not good at. And you will not find humility anywhere in my bones. It's a commonly misunderstood word. Some people think humility is, oh, I stink, I'm nothing. Oh, I'm, I'm lower than dirt. I'm the dirt that comes out of a worm's butt. I'm, oh. You know, and like that's what we think humility is, is self-deprecation, pooping on yourself, thinking you're worthless. That isn't humility at all. But it is related to dirt because you'll find it very interestingly. The word humility comes from the same Latin root word as human. It's from the the Latin word, anyone know? Humus, which means soil or dirt. The word humble and the word human both come from the Latin word dirt. That black stuff. That you put seeds in. Now that doesn't mean that you have to be lower than the dirt to be humble or human. It means you know where you come from. It means that you understand you are human and not a God. There are some people who just need to be grabbed by the shoulders and told, You are not a God. And you are most certainly not the God. You're one of us. You're a human being. You are dirt just like us, all of us. And what humility really is about is not being lower than dirt, but about being down to earth. It's about having a healthy, honest, and realistic self-image. It's about looking in the mirror and not walking away too flattered or too depressed, but just knowing what you really look like and what you're capable of. For some of us, We fall on the other side. We have no confidence at all. And God says, you don't know what I've deposited in you. You need to have a healthy dose of confidence. You just need to not walk around with a head too big that you can't get out of the building. 
That's a balance of humility, is know thyself. Know what you really are, what you're really worth, what you can really contribute, and then just do that in quiet confidence for the rest of your life. You know what humility looks like to me? Humility looks like that old man sitting, holding his wife's purse on the bench in the shopping mall, who's getting teased and underestimated by a bunch of teenage punks. But this old man has fought wars. He's taken shrapnel. He saved lives. And these young punks see nothing but an old geezer, a man who is a has-been, weakling, pants that don't fit right, holding his wife's purse, sitting like some kind of statue on a bench, and they have no idea who he is and what he represents and what he's seen and how he's lived. This man is a hero. And this man doesn't lash out, you young whippersnapper, he doesn't chase him, he just sits there. You know why he sits there quietly and smiles? Because he doesn't need the opinions of these little brats to tell him who he is. He has walked many thousands of miles in the shoes of a real man. His life, his God, his country has told him who he is. His wife, faithful for so many years, his children who thank him for his investment in their lives, those people told him who he is, and he knows it. And he's not shaken by the underestimation of these foolish punks who don't know who he is. And so he sits quietly and he smiles because he has real humility, a man of substance who does not need you or me to tell him who he really is or what he's got inside of him. That is biblical humility, and it inspires me to think that's what we're aspiring towards. And it is so rare in the world. We are all such an insecure bunch. All I have to do is go, whatever. And you can re- you'll be ready to fight me, won't you? That's America. You diss me. That's worse than shooting me. I'd rather you shoot me than diss me, because you diss me. That's it, man. We're up in arms. Where is the humility that breeds that quiet strength, that confidence that says, I do not need you to tell me who I am? I know very well. And because God is in control, and because he's told us who we are, we don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to spend our lives impressing or competing or beating other people or broadcasting how great we are to the world. We just live our lives knowing comfortably, securely, that there is more in me than you could ever imagine. And someday you hang around me long enough, you'll benefit from that. Because God has put a universe of potential in me. Do you understand what that feels like? What that looks like? Real humility. Quiet confidence that says, I know who I am. Imagine the humility it took for Jesus to be on the cross and listen to these Roman soldiers who actually thought they were the greatest empire ever on the earth, the greatest force ever assembled. And Jesus goes, oh, I have legions of angels at my disposal. How tempting. If it were me, I would have just been like, just one legion, just quick, come down and smack that guy down right there. That one is talking. Just pow, something. If it were me, I could not have resisted. What humility for Jesus to just hang there. Sit insult away. You have no idea what you're doing. You don't know who you're talking about. Someday you will. And I hope you'll get on my side before you realize who I am. That's humility. And if the world sees that in us, they'll start to understand a little better what Jesus Christ really is like. 
Jesus was not insecure. Jesus knew himself. The world needs to know that that's what our Lord is made of. Two more real quick. Gentleness. I'm not going to say a whole lot about gentleness except to say that when you hear the word gentle, what images flow through your mind? Maybe babies' butts. Don't you just love, I mean, I know it, it, it borders on shady, but I just love touching babies' butts. They're just so, so soft. It's like, oh, that's the softest thing I've ever touched. I wish I had a baby's butt built right in here just all day long. I just like this. Because <clears throat> they're so soft. You think of a butterfly, just... It can't even fly where it wants because any gust of wind is like, whoa, man, I was trying to land on that. You know, gentle is a butterfly or a baby's bottom to us. But the word gentle, as it was given to us in the New Testament, again, is a very different word. Let me show you a picture. If you can bring the video back to my screen here. I want to show you a picture that portrays what gentleness really means in the biblical sense of the word. Okay? This is an undoctored photograph of me petting a cheetah in Kenya. It was purring like some kind of house cat. It was just much louder than your cat at home. But still, I forgot where I was. And I just I was like sitting there posing for pictures, petting a cheetah. What's wrong with me? Now, this picture is a picture of gentleness. You would look at that cat and you would say, Aw, it's so cute. It's so gentle. Make no mistake. That cat could have bitten my head off and eaten it for breakfast and still been hungry. That cat, if I began to run, what would be the point? 70 miles an hour. It'll catch me. It will maul me to death. And I was in there with three other ones. And we just, after a while, I felt like, you know, uh, what a Siegfried and Roy, only without the expertise. And, and every once in a while, a flash of panic would overtake me. What am I doing in this cage? I've walked in on the word of some African park rangers. Says, oh, no problem. You know, you go in there. They're, they're nice. And I'm like, okay. And I walked into a cage full of cheetahs. Now, I'm showing you this picture partly to show off because, dang, I'm the man. Yeah, I petted a cheetah. All right, let's just get that out of the way. But let me tell you the other reason I'm showing you this picture. That cheetah is gentleness. It is calm on the surface, but it betrays the fact that it hides that underneath is incredible power. It could destroy me, but it chooses for some inexplicable reason not to. Maybe it doesn't like Korean food. You don't have to look at that anymore. I'm cool enough for my own good. You know what the point is, is this. You have inside of you, just like I have inside of me, deposited there by Christ, a spirit of power. That means through Christ, you and I can endure things that would crush normal people. We can press on when any other person would give up the fight. We can move mountains, we can heal the sick, we can raise the dead because of the great power which Christ has deposited in you and me. There is no such thing as an average Christian. It is an extraordinary thing to be inhabited by the God of the universe. And that is who you and I are if we are followers of Jesus Christ. It is a phenomenal thing to bear that power in our lives. But we don't wear that power on our sleeves. We don't say to people... I could loose you or bind you. I could heal you or not heal you. I could condemn you. I could shock you. I can rain fire down on you. We don't say things like that. Not saying all that is true, but that's not our attitude as we show off what we can do. 
We know what we can do. And we walk about knowing that and gently, humbly exercising the power that is in us. We control our anger. We control our pride because Jesus Christ has gotten control of us. And because he controls us, we don't have to control other people. With all due respect to our brother Benson, a Christian is more like Clark Kent than Superman. You understand me? Didn't it just make you want to grit your teeth every time Lois says, like, oh, all right, whatever, Clark, you're just a dweeb. I'm in love with Superman. And you're like, dumb woman, don't you know that that mild-mannered reporter is Superman? We are Clark Kent. Mild-mannered, seemingly harmless, but filled and imbued with a power unimaginable. And you don't have to rip open your shirt and show everyone the S. It's there. It is there. It's there. Quietly. Hidden. Your secret identity. And you will help the world, but you don't need to be known. Did you notice nobody knew that Clark was Superman? For a reason. Because he isn't in it to make money or get celebrity. He's in it to save the world. I've never heard anyone complain about too much clothing, so let me give you one last garment here. It's patience. Let me make a a very interesting insight uh, that maybe would not be clear to you if you had not studied the original language. But in the New Testament, there are a couple different words that are given to us as patience. One of them is quite often translated long-suffering. Have you ever heard that word? Long-suffering. No one likes that word because suffering stinks and long-suffering sounds even worse. Well, let me tell you the difference between long-suffering and patience in the New Testament. Long-suffering is that inner strength that allows us to endure difficult circumstances. Patience is that inner strength that allows us to endure difficult people. That's the difference. And the kind of patience that Paul is saying is clothing Christ and now clothing us is this quiet inner strength, this power that allows us to endure Difficult people. They're closely related words, but we need to know what Christ has in mind for us in this particular case. When we walk around the world representing him, yes, it is a witness that we bear suffering with great strength, but it is an even greater witness, I believe, when we bear difficult people with great patience. It it requires a different kind of inner strength. I know some people who can go through the harshest of circumstances and they never move to the left or the right. They're just like, how can you stand it? I can take it. But you let one irritating person come near them, they're like, oh, I'm going to kill that person. Where did all that patience go? It's a different kind of patience, isn't it? It's a different kind of patience. Do you have that kind of patience that allows you to deal with that person who you just sometimes want to, when no one's looking, take a little hammer and just go, oh, man. I just want to pound you because you're so draining on my life. Every time I see you coming, I want to walk the other way. You just, you're like the thorn in my flesh. I have this theory that the thorn in the flesh that Paul was talking about in Corinthians was not an ailment, but a person. Here comes my thorn in the flesh again. Here's a question I have for you, though. Could it be that God has put that person in your life because he seeks to get glory by the way you respond to them? That your goal is not to actually fix them, not to change them, although that would be wonderful, 
but it is to give God the glory as you bear out with great patience, Christ-like patience, this relationship that most other people would discard in a New York minute. Some of you guys may be smiling because you have this person in your life and you might have come to church this morning thinking, that's it, this week I'm calling them, you and I are finished, I can't take it anymore. You suck the life out of me like a life force vampire. Just every time I'm with you, I just die a little bit. Nothing left for me. I'm so tired and angry when you leave my room. But do you know what? God is getting glory and that person's life is so blessed. Because we're not just like ourselves, but we're like Jesus when we're together. And the amazing thing is, the more you endure such relationships, the more Christ gives you real love for that person. Not just, oh, I'll be patient with you, but I'm growing to actually love you. You are becoming my friend, my brother, my sister, in just the same way that Jesus doesn't look at you and me and just grit his teeth and endure us. He cherishes us. He loves us, which seems to me quite impossible. But it actually is true. He loves us. How that's possible is always beyond me. But he loves us. And if we could understand how he loves us, we would be so greatly strengthened to endure difficult relationships with more Christ-like patience. Now, I want you to think about that person in your life. If you have such a person, many of you do, and you go home and tell your spouse, or maybe it is your spouse, I hope not, but <laughs> or I, if it is, come see me this week. We'll have some counseling. Maybe you go home and tell your spouse, oh, again, it was today, just another one of those times. And they say to you, well, why don't you just tell them you can't see them anymore? Why don't you just cut them off? And you say, because something in me won't let me. I want to be Christ to that person. I find that God has given me a special enablement to love this person when nobody else seems to. And I'm not going to stop doing that because it's my privilege in Christ to keep wearing that garment of patience with these difficult people. What about you? Are you willing to put on that garment and learn from Jesus how to handle with patience difficult people that are in your life? To conclude, let me just say again to you, that we're not going to get any of this just through sheer exertion. I'm going to try to be more like this. That's not the way it works. The starting point of getting these garments is to gaze at Jesus, be filled with him, and then never stop looking at him as the great model for what kind of people you and I are supposed to be. That is why, if you're not spending time in God's word, you will forget very quickly who you're supposed to be. Did you hear what I just said? If you're not spending time in the Bible, you will forget right away who you're supposed to be, and you'll make something up. Go to the Word of God. Gaze at Jesus, his beauty, his strength, his manliness, his humanity. Look at him. Become like him. Put on the garment that he has privileged us to wear, which we finally now have the frame to hold up and pull off. I see things on the mannequin at the store all the time. It looks so good on the mannequin because the mannequin is 6'2 and has muscles. I buy it and put it on me, and I get so depressed. But when Jesus entered our lives, he changed our frame. And these garments will now look good on you. You can pull them off. 
You can respond to broken people who are being ugly with tender-hearted mercy instead of disgust. You can show kindness. That's mercy when wrath would be expected. You can be humble just like that old man I described at the shopping mall where you don't need anyone else to tell you who you are. There is a quiet strength to you because Christ has already spoken your identity. You don't have to wear it on your sleeve all the time. There's a gentleness that comes through the quiet strength that says, I am being controlled by God. There's power in me you couldn't imagine, but I will not wield that power for my own glory. I will quietly do it for the good of the world. Finally, there's this beautiful Christ-like garment that says, I've got lots of difficult people in my life, but in each of their lives, I will cast off the fragrance of Jesus Christ, the lover of people's souls, not the fragrance of a frustrated human being who has reached the end of his rope. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a second, what would it do to Hoffman Estates and the Chicago area if 200 of us looked like this? What would be possible to the world around us if each one of us began every day to look more like Jesus Christ? Well, I don't know that we completely changed the world overnight, but I know one thing. Fewer and fewer people around us would misunderstand what Jesus is like. Fewer people around us would see that video that we showed as an instructional video, and they'd realize what a satire that really is. Jesus is beautiful. He is everything good about mankind and everything good about God wrapped in one. And he is the epitome of what all of us would long to become if we had the power to become that. And that is our privilege as Christians, to put on this garment and become like Jesus to the world. Amen? I pray that you and I will be willing to look more like this as we gaze at Jesus and wear the garment of Christ-likeness. Join me in prayer, would you? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.